Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to set the other things that are on our minds aside to focus on what you have to say to us today, to set it in our hearts and for it to change our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text today is Revelation 20, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6, so if you could please turn there now. Some of you might recall that back in March of this year, I attended a preaching workshop at uh, Sydney Missionary and Bible College, and its intention was to improve all aspects of preaching, and obviously for the various matters of technique, like delivery style, that was done in several workshops. And of course, there was a test. The central and scariest aspect of the whole thing was that I had to deliver my most recent sermon, unchanged, to a panel of peers and lecturers for their criticism. Well, of course, they were overcome. I booked for the conference about ten months before, I did know the sermon that I take would be from Revelation, but I wasn't exactly sure which bit because things change and sometimes we do swap the roster around to suit circumstances. That said, I was absolutely certain that I have to deal with something really complicated like the beast from the sea in chapter 13. And so I was relieved in the end only have to make remarks on a trumpet. Yay! However, I am paying for that relief because today I have to try to explain one of the most complicated and debated sections in all of Scripture, the millennium. Now, you'll often hear that phrase or something like like it from the pulpit, the most difficult verse in Scripture, but honestly, this is it for me. But let's read it and, and we'll see how we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Hmm. How on earth are we going to deal with this? I just know we must begin somewhere or if we are going to have any lunch today. So we'll start with some isms, some cysts and ists. There are, and you're going to be anticipating the speech, there are four main approaches to interpreting Revelation and specifically the Millennium as a book. Firstly, there are preterists who believe that all the things described in Revelation happened at the fall of Jerusalem, which was 
around about 67, 68 AD, the Romans invaded, or and at the fall of the Roman Empire. So for them, it's all over, over. Secondly, there are futurists who are looking ahead and believe that everything is going to go down just before the second coming. Well, they live in waiting. Thirdly, there are historicists who hold that Revelation is a chronological description. That means just going through time. Uh, it's a description of church history from the first century until the second coming. They just live. And then lastly, we have idealists who suggest that our book depicts only principles of spiritual warfare, not specific events. And they both live and wake, but they're in a fighting stance. With these in mind, we might legitimately ask in the context of today's text whether the millennium has happened, is happening, is yet to happen, or perhaps it's just symbolic. So hold on to your seats, folks, because it looks like there's turbulence ahead. The most important thing by far is, of course, that these questions have created some excellent Christianese. It's useful to give the impression of heated debate over post-sermon coffee. I can tell you it impresses the elders no end. I'll briefly discuss now some of the positions you might take at the coffee table, but please remember to keep a very, very scholarly look on your face at all times when using them, even if you haven't got a clue what they mean, because the person looking at you might think that you do. Seriously, though, there are four major schools of thought on the timing of the millennium. You might be a millennial and believe that there is no future millennium at all because it is the age that we're currently living in now. Alternatively, you might be post-millennial. You, you hold that there will be a future millennium, not necessarily literally a thousand years, but nevertheless um, an extended time of Christian values being held in society and then Christ will return. The dead will be raised, judgment will be done, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Thirdly, you can be premillennial, in which case you say that Christ will come back before the millennium. According to this viewpoint, the present church age will continue until, it, as it nears the end, a time of great tribulation and suffering will come about, after which Christ will return to establish his millennial kingdom. Then the believing dead will be raised and will rule with the physical Christ on earth for a thousand years. And there's a lot more to premillennialism, like the others, a lot more, but I think it will just complicate things for now and so we won't go there today. The thing is that it's not possible to heap scorn on any one of these viewpoints because they all do have some good grounds for their existence. Unfortunately, they also have some quite substantial problems too. And so this difficulty has given birth to a final and very informal kind of millennialism, which is pan-millennialism. And this describes the people who are going to hang around and see how it all pans out. It's not my invention, by the way. Although it may seem humorous and flippant, I am personally quite strongly in favour of this pan-millennial viewpoint. And I hope that my reasons for being that way will be apparent as we move through the sermon. Now there might be a problem here for you already. The contradictions in the various eschatological positions, and that eschatological thing just means end times, that's another after coffee phrase, you know. Um, well those contradictions might seem to make nonsense of the idea that scripture always explains itself. 
You see, the truth is, occasionally it doesn't. There are some things that still are exceedingly mysterious, such as how does God reconcile predestination with human freedom of will? But somehow he does. How do we handle this idea then that there are always going to be things that we cannot ever clearly explain in Scripture, no matter how clever the commentator or how hard they try or what new interpretation of a Greek word they find? Does it invalidate the Bible as the authoritative and inerrant word of God? No. I believe that on the contrary, we ought to find this deeply reassuring. That might sound weird, so you might be saying, why? Well, I believe that it reminds us of God's proper place in the scheme of things. One of the themes that I hope all of us have picked up by now in the study of the book of Revelation is God's exceeding greatness. It is so exceptional and prodigious that even if I used every superlative from every language ever used on the whole earth, I would lack the means to properly describe him. That mightiness is a pearl of very great price because it is only a being who is of such great ability, great in power, in wisdom, in knowledge, in grace, in love, in mercy, in judgment too, who can give me the sure hope that I need. That this seething mess of seven billion people on a planet of such extraordinarily complex life and geography is properly and fairly managed by a proper grown-up. But the promises of Scripture can be made real. God does have the power to grant me an eternal life with a new and perfect body on a new and perfect earth and freedom from sin and fear and pain there. It is His promise and He will not go back on it and He also has the ability to do it. And not just about able to do it either with a bit of grunting and sweating but easily and swiftly and gently. If I could understand everything that he did, then I would also have to believe that he was also like me. And if he was like me, then he could fail and change his mind. But I cannot understand him. He is far above me. And so all that he says he will do, he will do. So all glory to him, praise him for his inscrutable nature, but praise him most of all that despite that stature of his, he has not held himself above his creation, but rather he is in his creation. He has held it and saved it. He has held and saved you and me. I just quickly want to make one more point about choosing panmillennialism before we move on specifically to the text. I want to say it does not ever mean that apathy is okay. It does not ever mean that a Christian can afford to ignore the responsibilities set out for them in Scripture. And I will come back to this later. I'm not saying that everyone ought to be on the middle ground of the pan-millennial. I'm quite sure that there are those of you here who strongly oppose the idea, and I do genuinely respect your position. Although it must be said that preaching to a group group who holds different views does make explaining this particular passage extraordinarily difficult. I'm happy that you hold to any millennial position that you like, provided 
that you do so because you have searched Scripture. You have read what leading commentators have to say and you have asked the Holy Spirit for enlightenment. That it is not merely the popular or faddish thing at the time because God's Word deserves our very best efforts at understanding and then its application to our lives. So, with that preamble over, let's see what we can do with the text. Bearing in mind that we are of various persuasions on the millennialism, I will take the cowardly stance of trying to steer a middle course and focus on the themes that are true no matter where you stand on the matter. I have to add here that nobody should make too much about the tense that I use in doing so, since trying to make sure that nothing inflammatory is inferred by suggesting when a thing is taking place is going to make it just a horrible thing to hear. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. I'll read them again. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. What's outstanding for me in this text is the very most ordinariness of it all. John doesn't say, Then I saw the biggest, meanest, scariest angel with tats and a big sword coming down from heaven on a holly. And then there was a big fight that went on for a long time with lots of huge explosions and toppled buildings. But the angel won, even though he'd lost one leg and was bleeding a lot. But then he just managed with the last of his strength to catch Satan by surprise and push him into the lake of fire. That's what we might expect because as humans we are rightly respectful of Satan's power. And if you want, you ought to be because he's smarter and faster and stronger than any human. But there's none of that. What does it take here to emphatically capture him, confine him and render him powerless? Easily, if not casually bound, cast down, shut up and sealed, as it says here. An angel. One. Not of any notable appearance or ability at all. Also a created being, but irresistibly empowered by God's authority and power. It's regrettable that because of his reputation, we often make the mistake of awarding Satan some degree of godness. We look around us at the terrible mess that the world is in and we wonder if the Lord really is winning or even able to win. We forget that like us, Satan is also a created being and the gap between him and God in terms of ability is actually only a little bit smaller than ours. God is great, as I've already said, exceedingly great. He is exceedingly greater than Satan too. He is more than able and he can and will subdue our most fearsome enemy with an angel. Perhaps, perhaps even the very least of them just to make a point. And so we ought to be profoundly encouraged. God will win. This scene describes a real event. It tells us that God really is in control. And he will save all those who call Jesus their Lord. It does not, if you belong to Jesus, it does not matter if Satan has been bound or is bound or will be bound. 
because at the appropriate time his confinement is certain and simple as is his complete defeat and removal from creation in the end. It's just that easy. God will make it so. Now we can deal with verses 4 to 6. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead not live, did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The main theme of this section is quite easy. One might imagine from an earthly perspective that a martyred Christian has been silenced and defeated forever. You can just imagine the one who's killed them saying, that's it, sorted. However, this is clearly not so because here they are, reigning with Christ. The beast might have crushed their bodies, but it's proven that he has no grip on their souls at all. And the martyrs already know and believe this, and this is why they're brave enough to offer their very lives for the sake of Christ. As we see here, the Lord honors their commitment and sacrifice by sharing with them the benefits of his triumphant reign. Because they aren't just there as observers. Verse 4 tells us that judgment was committed to them. Now, I appreciate that's not especially modern English in the New King James Version. Other translations say it a bit more plainly. Judgment was given unto them, for example. They share in judging with the Lord. That's an amazing honour, isn't it? So there's two comments I'd like to offer here. Firstly, we can understand from this that God sets a very, very high value on our commitment to him whilst we are here on earth. Think about it. What kind of extraordinary privilege would it be to sit with Christ in judgment? Personally, I can't even begin to describe it. What is clear to me is that when we freely choose to obey God, even as far as accepting our own death for his sake, then it means a great deal to him. And he rewards us accordingly. Given the modern spirit of competition and its aim that the winner gets the most toys, we might start to think here that we ought to be designing our service to God so that we can maximize our reward and hence our own glory. Perhaps if we think very quietly about that, God won't notice and we'll get the biggest reward. No. Our first priority is God's glory. If reward comes as a result, then it is merely a very tiny cherry on the very large cake of salvation. Now you might be sitting there thinking, why is God's glory so important? Why do you keep going on about this, Dave? Is it because he's some kind of egomaniac and we ought to try to make him happy so that he'll give us some kind of special favour or maybe he'll hold back the lightning next time we mess up? It's quite easy to think like that, isn't it? Because our culture encourages us to despise people who seek their own glory. Although, I must say, in a very contrary way, it's also true that we're encouraged to do the same as them. I mean, look at Donald Trump. What do we think of him? We may despise him, but we're also probably a little bit jealous of his position 
and his power. But God isn't like that at all. He doesn't need us to glorify him at all, but he absolutely deserves our every effort to glorify him. And this is because he has made us, healed us, ransomed us, restored us, forgiven us at the cost of his own life. His glory is not assumed. It is real. It is perfect. It is demonstrated. It is obvious. And so our response ought to be clear. After everything that he has done for us, how can we not reply in kind? And then he gives even more and is faithful to reward us. God is awesome. Secondly, this scene reminds us how exquisitely perfect the blood of Jesus makes the sinner at the moment of conversion. Since we all continue to sin throughout our lives, it's often hard to really believe and accept that in God's eyes we are entirely sinless. Spotless and white as snow before him, because quite rightly, guilt reminds us that there are things we shouldn't be doing. However, if it were not so, if there were even the very slightest, the very tiniest imperfection remaining, then there is absolutely no chance of us joining in the scene here. No one who carries the tiniest bit of stain of sin is fit to pass judgment on a fellow sinner. But it's not just the martyrs. As a believer, that's how God sees you, spiritually, right now, perfect. This isn't some exalted state that you'll only achieve after you die. It's you, today, this very minute. And it has been since the moment that you repented of your sin and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. That's what it means when we say we are justified in Christ. It's just as if we had never sinned. And we need to take hold of what justification has granted us, not just to hear a clever wordplay for a reminder. The reminder is far more than words. The reminder is that through Jesus, through Jesus we are made victorious over sin and death. That we ought to live like we are victorious. That is what the martyrs here understand. This is why they gladly give up their physical lives for the sake of the Lord. And that is why this picture is here to encourage us of our own victory. Unfortunately, this privilege might sometimes be misunderstood. Rather than doing the proper thing, to praise and honour and glorify his name, some people might think it's okay to just continue sinning because, hey, it doesn't matter. God has fixed it all for me anyway, isn't it? Well, that's plainly wrong. Paul deals with this error rather thoroughly in Romans 5 and 6. In verse 1, chapter 6 he writes this what shall we say then shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound certainly not how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it he goes on to explain that because believers are baptized into Jesus we share both in his death and his resurrection that is that we too die to sin and are raised to new life The old one of us, the dirty one, the slave to sin is dead. It's the new person, perfected, free from those chains that lives on. And so, why on earth would anyone willingly take up the heavy chains of slavery again? And more so, 
why would anyone wish to insult the one who has freed them at a great personal cost by running straight back to their jailer? We can't make the mistake of carrying on as we previously did. No, our response should instead be a lifelong commitment to the standard of the one who has saved us, to work for his ends, to obey his commands, to praise and honor and glorify God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, this brings us at last to the confusing technical matter of first resurrections and second deaths in verses 5 and 6. Don't we just die and then are resurrected again, either for eternal life or eternal punishment? What's all this? It's confusing. Apparently it's not so simple and understanding why might affect your personal eschatology. So let me demonstrate. It's generally held by those who are of a premillennial viewpoint that this first resurrection is a physical one. The martyrs that we read about here are present in their new bodies. And since that could only happen after Jesus' second coming, it therefore means that all of the events of chapter 21 to 10 must happen after that second coming. I mean, it really does make perfect sense, doesn't it? And that's exactly why it's impossible to be completely sure about when the millennium takes place. As I've said, all of the various positions that I've spoken about earlier have strong arguments like this one behind them, but then they also have some weaknesses. The source of most disputes is time, which is why in this preaching series we have all taken a pictorial approach to our sermons. We have said that we must not try to create a timeline for this book, because actually we cannot. It causes confusion. We are merely seeing a series of pictures about how God deals with the end of things for the purpose of encouragement. And remember that that encouragement was a real letter, and it was written to real people 2,000 years ago. And so it had to be relevant to them first. They had to understand it as well. These pictures are not necessarily in order, but they may be in part. And we just won't know until we get to heaven. So what is this picture in verses 4 to 6 saying about death and resurrection? Well, firstly, I want to suggest that it is a different picture. It doesn't necessarily follow straight after the confinement of Satan in verses 1 to 3. It's really quite possible that the martyrs are reigning with Christ in heaven at the very same time that the serpent of old is locked away. To do that though, they must be there and present. To be there and present, they were resurrected. They were the first to be resurrected from all of those who have ever died in the whole of history. We might wonder if they do so physically or spiritually because actually both are possible from the text, but we can't be sure. So let's just set that argument aside because it actually doesn't change things. Next, even if we haven't read ahead, it's reasonable to assume that if there is a specifically named first resurrection, then there will consequently be a second. And verse 5 very nicely supports this idea. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. What can live again mean except for a second resurrection, a second wave if you like? So we have a picture already that we can draw. We have the first resurrection of martyrs, uh, then an extended period of their joint reign with Christ the King in heaven whilst Satan is confined 
And then after all of that extended reign, the rest of humanity who have died are brought back to life. Second resurrection. And that does mean all, by the way. Both those who are believers and who are not believers are resurrected then for the final judgment. So I think that lot's pretty clear. But what about those second deaths? Verse 6. Over such the second death has no power. Well, to begin with, in the same way that a first resurrection implies a second, a second death implies a first. No, not a third. Did I hear a third? I think it's pretty obvious what that is. We live and then we die. And hopefully the second death is explained because when we read ahead to verses 11 to 15 of the same chapter, we will see that it is the fate of those who are found wanting in the book of life. And the consequence is that they are cast into the lake of fire along with death and Hades. But I'll leave that particular picture to someone else to explain, although it's certainly a chilling one. So now we have the full explanation. We will all die. That's the first death. The saints who are martyred by death number one throughout heaven will get an early call, the first resurrection. And then when the appointed time arrives, God raises everyone else who's died with the second resurrection. He passes judgment and then condemns those whose names are not in the book of life to the second, final and very awful death. There will be no further resurrection or deaths. That's it. The matter of sin is settled for good. Right, that's the mechanics of chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. We have learned that perfectly understanding the millennium is impossible. I'm very sorry. However, this is still helpful because it reminds us of the gap in ability between us and God. He is able and can do what he promises. Those who follow Jesus as Lord will certainly be saved. And that power also means that Satan, our lifelong adversary, is firmly and easily put in his place at the proper time by an angel under God's authority. Next we have talked about the high value that the Lord places on the attitude of our heart and the exquisite perfection that he has given that heart when we come to Christ. And finally we have investigated some potentially confusing terminology around death and resurrection. So, that's all good. Now we hopefully know a few new things. But I did promise earlier to return to the matter of living. How should we live differently because of the millennium? As a Christian, living and knowledge should not be separated. What we choose to know and how we choose to live with, with, with what we know is very important. I can promise you that knowing what the second death means will not be at all helpful when you are in mid-air on the way to the lake of fire. But Lord, Lord, you may cry. He will not hear you or change his mind if Jesus is not your Lord. The only way to the glory of the second resurrection is to know Christ and that invariably also means living him as well. So, do not seek the meaning of the millennium merely for scholarly reasons. It's futile and it's a waste of time. We, all of us here, already know the things that we should be doing. 
I'm not going to waste time repeating them. They are clear to us from the pages of the Bible and they come to us every Sunday from this pulpit and many, many thousands like it. So I don't need an entire sermon to remind you of what they are. But I will summarize. There's a passage that I just love because it clearly gives us both a question and an answer to the riddle of living for God in a very simple way that's easy to remember. And it comes from the prophet Micah. Chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Here's the answer. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That is how we both know and live Christ. No matter what the millennium is. That is how we, you, will be part of the revelation picture we have seen today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing book of Revelation. Even though it's hard to understand and it seems so graphic and and violent, when we peer into it we do see both great hope and your great power and might and love. Lord, as we see these things, I pray that we might be provoked to set aside the fears that we have of living openly for you. Because what is life in comparison with what you offer us, what you show us in the pages of this book? Help us then to live for Christ, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.